Welcome to this episode of Sleep Health with Dr. Alison Bentley. That's me. This episode is going to be the first in a number of episodes about snoring and sleep apnea and breathing at night. It's going to include diagnosis and how to interpret sleep studies. What are those CPAP machines anyway that people keep on talking about? Different treatments that we have for sleep apnea. This particular one is going to talk about what actually is snoring and obstructive sleep apnea anyway what causes it, and then a little bit about the next episode, which is going to be about the consequences of sleep apnea. Why would we even worry about a thing that's happening at night while we're asleep? In these series, we're always believing in the power of sleep with Ristonic, and they're sponsoring this. So let's talk about snoring. Snoring is probably the worst thing you can have as an insomniac when you're trying to sleep is a partner who you love. But when you go to sleep, there is this noise that is happening next to you. Now, so where's that coming from? Where, where does snoring come from? It's very common. It's the butt of lots of jokes. Everybody jokes about snoring. Men deny vehemently that they snore because apparently it's a weakness that you have. It has a whole lot of layers to it, but what we're going to talk about here is where is that noise coming from and what does it imply, and is it anything to worry about? So snoring is basically the same as you becoming any wind instrument. You are essentially a vuvuzela at night when you are snoring. So what we have at the back of our throat, I'm sure you all know that there's this little tongue at the back that hangs down the back of our throat. Its main job is to close off your nose when you swallow so that food doesn't go up your nose. That's its main job. But when you're asleep, it just sits there and minds its own business. Snoring happens because it is vibrating. It's vibrating against the back of the throat, and that is where the noise is being created. But you can't have noise from the snoring, from that little tongue, which is called the uvula. You can't have noise being created unless you open your mouth a little bit and you have a sound box. And then you create this delicious... That kind of noise that that gets created. And you can hear, hopefully you can hear the vibration at the back of my throat when I make that noise. That's what snoring is. But why does do some people make that noise and other people don't make the noise? So they're quiet sleepers and then other people snore. So what's going on is that there's got to be some change in the airflow that's moving through the nose. Now, we're designed to breathe through our nose anytime. Our nose has hairs in it to catch big bugs. It has mucus in it to catch little bugs or dust. And then within the nose are these large bones that have a massive surface area. And what they do is warm the air and wet the air so that at the back, by the time the air gets to the back of the nose, it is the perfect temperature. It is clean. It is warm and it is wet. It's perfect to go down into your lungs. If you breathe through your mouth, that doesn't happen. And your mouth gets dry because the air sucks all the moisture out of your, out of your mouth. And then it's not good to go into your lungs. And so if you're a constant mouth breather, you tend to get more lung infections. You tend to get more throat infections because the air is going in there and it's not well prepared to go down into the lungs. So we're designed to breathe through our nose. And certainly as children, you pretty much are obligatory nose breathers in that you, you can't breathe through your mouth and sleep at the same time. But generally when we go to sleep, the brain is going to continually want to breathe through the nose because, as I said, that's how it's designed to do it. However, if you have a nose that has something wrong in it, so let's pick an easy example. So what's called a deviated septum. So you have broken your nose, for example, um, during rugby at school or you've been bashed with a hockey ball or something. And, you know, you know, when you break your nose, the whole thing is swollen and we can't see what's going on. But often you are left after that with a slight squint 
in the septum. So what happens is the septum breaks to one side and closes off relatively one side of the nose. So you have a left nostril and a right nostril. And if the septum is moved over into the left-hand side, you now have less air going down the left-hand side. And you should have 50% going down the right, 50% going down the left. Now, you might have 60% going down the left and only 40% going down the right. When that air gets to the back of the nose, it becomes one tube. So you have one tube going down the back of your throat. It becomes one tube, and with that imbalance in the airflow, you're going to get a bit of a tornado. So you're going to get the air swirling around the back of your throat instead of going smoothly down into the lungs. And when that air starts to swirl, that's when it's going to catch the uvula at the back of the throat and start it vibrating. So anything in the nose, whether it's a skew septum, even if just you have a cold and the air is moving very quickly through your nose, you're having to pull the air and suck it much harder to get through that swollen nose that you have, you're more likely to snore. If you have adenoids, now the adenoids sit right at the back of your nose and we don't take them out routinely anymore in children. I mean, at my age, you had three episodes of tonsillitis and your adenoids and tonsils were whipped out. Not anymore because we know that they do have a function, but they may be enlarged. They may be really ill in a sense that they're festering and full of pus. We don't know because we can't really see them easily, but they might be big and they might be enlarged and they might be causing an obstruction. So it can be anything like that in the nose. Then it could also be anything further down that's also causing an obstruction. So it's like tonsils. So your tonsils sit at the back of your throat and they can be in the way of the airflow. So it can be any kind of physical obstruction like that which causes that uvula to vibrate. The uvula and the whole of the palate area might be enlarged. It might be, a, you might just have a big palate and a big uvula and it's in the way. And so even if the airflow is beautiful, it can't miss it. You might also only snore when you lie on your back. So what happens there? Well, when you go to sleep, remember all the muscles relax of the whole body and that includes the muscles around the jaw. The jaw kind of drifts backwards when you lie on your back and it starts closing off the back of your throat. Now you have to move air faster because you've got to suck past that obstruction. Move air faster, that uvula is more likely to vibrate. So it might be only when you lie on your back. That's why that happens. You might only snore when you go out and binge, binge drink, or even if you just have two glasses of wine, you might find that you snore more. What you're doing there is relaxing those muscles even more. So the throat itself is relaxed, and so the throat is moving more than it should actually move. What else could cause snoring? Reflux. So acid that's coming up from the stomach. Remember, when you're upright during the day, the acid is kept firmly in the stomach. But when you lie down, it can creep up and hit the back of the tongue, cause an obstruction, often cause pain, and therefore cause you to snore. So multiple reasons why you can snore. Probably the single biggest reason why people snore is because they put on weight. Now, in women, the weight gain is between the shoulders and the knees. So it's kind of down in the body. But in men, weight gain is often around the neck and the chest area. And if you put on weight around the neck, and we literally use a neck circumference of 43 centimeters, whether you've ever had your neck circumference measured, if you ever buy a formal shirt, that first number is your neck circumference. So it's a 37 short or a 43 long. That's the neck circumference. And if your neck circumference is over 43 centimeters, then that's indicative of a problem as far as breathing at night is concerned. If you put on weight around your neck, then you narrow the whole tube down. And so it's making it harder to breathe. So snoring can be caused, in summary, can be caused by anything that makes it harder to breathe 
or makes the airflow unbalanced in your throat or makes the air go faster through your throat or anything like that. So it's, it's really a physics thing. If the airflow is disrupted through your throat, you are likely to snore. So you can snore only in one position. You can snore only when you have alcohol. Sleeping tablets may make you more likely to snore. Any damage to your nose or anything like that. And multiple of those often. So you might have a nose problem and you snore a little bit on your side, but when you lie on your back, it's really, really loud. And so that's where snoring comes from. And managing snoring is then targeting those particular kinds of problems. We don't worry medically really about snoring. Yes, it is a noise disturbance. Yes, it is a divorce maker, all of that. So we're not disputing the impact that snoring has within the bedroom and with often within families. But medically, it's often not a problem. So it doesn't cause medical problems. It starts to cause medical problems when snoring is not the only thing that's happening at night. So there's a snoring that is just sawing down the forest. You know, it's just this regular snore, breathe out, snore, breathe out, snore, breathe out. And that just goes on the whole night. But breathing is regular. There's no interruption to the breathing. And we wouldn't really worry about that medically. We start to be worried when there's a catch in that breath. So it starts with snoring. So and then it goes that kind of catch that you get in the snoring and that's indicative that breathing is now being disrupted and that we're starting to move into an apnea kind of zone okay so apnea the word apnea the pnea means breathing and the a on anything means not so you're not breathing so that's what it means but it's really important to get the language right because people will come to see me and say i have sleep apnea i stop breathing when i'm asleep you don't stop breathing. That's not what apnea is. Yes, there is a type of apnea called central apnea where you do stop breathing. It's extremely rare. If there's snoring and it's obstructive sleep apnea, then you don't stop breathing, but you do stop moving air. And what occurs is with that snoring, so often people will be snoring for a number of years and then they'll put on a couple of kilos and then it moves into apnea. So you've added an extra factor to that obstruction. So when it moves into apnea, what's happening is the suck that you're having to produce to move air past those obstructions, be it the jaw, be it the weight, be it whatever the obstructions are, you're having to suck harder. And it gets a point where you suck hard enough that you start to collapse the walls of the throat. And we're talking about the area right behind the tongue. So it's that area of the throat. It's a soft floppy tube. It's designed to close every time you swallow, but it shouldn't close when you breathe in. Sleep apnea happens when those walls start collapsing. The whole area starts closing off when you breathe in at night. And it's an extension of snoring. So I kind of talk about snoring as being the entry drug to apnea because it's very rare that you would get to have people having obstructive sleep apnea without having snoring beforehand. So it kind of grows into apnea. But sleep apnea is a whole different ballgame and needs to be treated very seriously. And there's a very good reason for that, because when your throat starts to collapse, initially when it starts to happen, your brain's going to wake you up very quickly. And in fact, there's a whole area of what we call sleep disordered breathing, because that's the whole concept that we're talking about here, where you don't get a change in flow. The air is moving, but you're having to put up so much more effort to make that air move properly. And with that effort, there's a wake up from sleep because your brain goes, whoa, hey, like we're not breathing properly, we need to wake up and just reestablish things, okay? So you wake up briefly. Most people are not aware of that wake up at all. And then you go back to sleep again. And that's kind of what happens first. 
Full-blown sleep apnea means that when you are asleep, that the throat collapses so much that it closes completely and you do not move any air. So breathing continues. So if you look at somebody who's having an apnea, there's no movement of air. There's no snoring. There's no noise. That's how you know they're not moving any air. The chest is continuing to try and breathe, but there's no air moving. And that situation can last for 10 seconds, which is the traditional kind of length of apnea. That's how much we worry about it if it's 10 seconds long. But I have, I've certainly had patients where the wife has said, you know, I can say the whole Lord's Prayer before they wake up. Okay. So it can be quite long, 45 seconds, 60 seconds. And it can be really scary for the person who's sharing the bed to witness this because you go, well, what's happening? Are they dying? Are they, what's going to happen? Well, the good news is that your brain will wake you up at some point in that process. As I said, often after 10 seconds, 15 seconds, so quite quickly, brain will wake you up. And so the noise goes from snoring. So, and then there's this, and then there's a quiet patch. And then there's a wake up, which is quite dramatic because it's <coughs> and there's drama and there's arms flinging about the place, lots of noise, etc., etc. And that's the wake up that happens. And I mean, obviously, there are consequences to that. You're being woken up in the middle of the night. There's adrenaline flooding through your body because of that wake up. Your blood pressure's going up. Your heart rate's going up. Your whole body thinks you're going to go and fight something. And then within a second or two, you're asleep again. Okay, so you just go straight back to sleep again. And I'm going to say this again. Most people don't know this is happening. In fact, most many people who have apnea who are single don't know that they are snoring even. They don't know that they have apnea because it's not something that you're aware of. It's happening during sleep. So I will often have conversations with patients. I go, do you stop breathing? No, no, I never do that. And their wife's going, yes, you do. And they go, no, because I would be aware of that. I go, but you're asleep. Of course, you're not aware of this. That's how things are supposed to be. We're not supposed to be aware of this. And the apnea can happen often at night. So we talk about normal being up to five of these events per hour of sleep. Like that would still be normal. Between five and 15 events per hour would now be mild sleep apnea. 15 to 30 events per hour would be moderate. And over 30 events per hour would be severe apnea. So you can't do the math. If you stop breathing 30 times per hour, okay, your throat closes off, you're not breathing, you're not moving air, your brain wakes you up 30 times per hour and you sleep for eight hours, that is 240 times you got woken up at night. You cannot get enough sleep. You cannot get good restful sleep. And so the key symptom of sleep apnea is waking up feeling tired, feeling as though even though you've had seven hours of sleep, you haven't had seven hours of sleep. The feeling as though you've had hardly any sleep and there's, there's a mismatch and patients often go, I don't understand. I've had seven hours, but I wake up exhausted. Okay. That's the cardinal symptom of sleep apnea. The consequences then are that during the day, you're going to be sleepy. So the brain is sleep deprived. It's been wake. It's been trying to keep you alive the whole night by waking you up every time your throat closes off. And so every time you sit down during the day and try to relax, the brain's going to go, great, I can sleep. So one of the key symptoms of sleep apnea is feeling sleepy during the day. Often you're a bit confused about that because you had seven hours of sleep. Why am I falling asleep in front of my computer? Why am I falling asleep in front of the TV? Why am I falling asleep every time I want to read? Why am I needing a nap every afternoon? Why am I falling asleep in my car while I'm driving? Sleepiness can be very severe. And so we do have patients with severe apnea who will say that they stop at a traffic light 
and wake up because someone's hooting behind them and they've just fallen asleep in their car. I mean, that's extremely dangerous. So it's really important if you're falling asleep during the day in situations where you don't want to fall asleep, it's different. If you kind of go, I love having a nap on a Sunday afternoon, that's lovely, and I can and I can't, I don't have to, but I love having it, that's different. We're talking here about where sleep intrudes on what you want to do because it's a sedentary activity, you're sitting still. That's where we want to look at sleep. So that's the one consequence to the apnea that's happening at night, these multiple wake-ups. And remember, severe apnea starts at 30. I write reports for people all the time. There's 70 per hour, 100 per hour. So it goes much higher than 30. That's certainly not the, the upper limit of it. But hopefully, you, when you look at severe apnea, you kind of go, no, that's quite a significant thing. So yes, there's the wake-ups, there's the poor sleep, there's the sleepiness during the day, but there's a lot going on underneath that, which is really, really important. When you close off your throat at night and you're not moving any air, the, um, the oxygen in your blood starts to drop, the saturation. I'm sure we all remember during COVID, the saturation, your oxygen saturation was critical as because if that started to drop, that's when you needed to go to hospital to be put on oxygen. So here we're talking about the same thing. It's the oxygen saturation and it drops quickly, but it's not the same as COVID. So it drops as soon as you close off, it starts to drop. Now it can drop really quickly down to very low levels. So it can drop down to 65%. It starts at about 90. That's the normal saturation it can drop down to 65%. But as soon as you have that wake up, it kicks straight back up to 90 again. So it doesn't go down to 65 and stay there kicks back up. But that drop in oxygen, which is now happening, remember, 30 times an hour, the whole night through, has its own consequences. And particularly what it's doing is it's dropping the oxygen content in, in organs like the heart, for example. So if you drop the oxygen in the heart, and then you suddenly have a wake up with lots of adrenaline, and you have it increase the blood pressure and increase the pulse rate, so the heart has to work harder, but there's less oxygen, that's a problem. Okay, so you have a heart that's in trouble at night. And there is a clear link now that we have between obstructive sleep apnea, where it's more than 20 per hour, and future cardiovascular disease. So much so that if it's over 20 per hour, your risk of a cardiovascular event in the next 10 years goes up to about 30%. So one in three people are likely to have heart disease. Now, we do a lot of other things to make sure we don't have heart disease. We exercise, we eat properly, we take cholesterol medication, we, do all, we don't smoke, we do all of that kind of stuff. This is now becoming, sleep apnea is now becoming another thing you have to look after, which is now increasing your risk of cardiovascular disease. And the reason, and it's not just cardiovascular disease, I think it's important to understand that, but that's the key one that we're looking for. What it appears is that if you have obstructive sleep apnea, your sleep is being disrupted every 20 seconds, your oxygen is going down, your body's kind of going, I don't know what it's going on, but there's not sleep. This is not what sleep looks like. That you're not actually servicing this car. I mean, that's what sleep is for, servicing the car. You're not actually servicing the body. You're not allowing the hormones to do their thing. You're not recovering. The day you kind of burn things up and then during the night you kind of replace them all so you're ready for the next day. And if you're not doing that, just like if you don't service your car properly, the breakdowns happen faster. And that seems to be the, the major consequence for sleep apnea is that whatever you're kind of destined to get, and it's maybe different for different people, happens sooner. So if you're destined to get dementia, then that happens sooner, up to 10 years earlier, if you have sleep apnea versus if you don't have sleep apnea, 
all the sleep apnea is treated. So the key problems that we have associated with sleep apnea are dementia, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and all kinds of metabolic disease, and depression. So let's run through those a little bit. So we've spoken a bit about cardiovascular disease. You have a heart that's really suddenly pumping and then relaxing and suddenly pumping and then relaxing during the night so you can understand where that wear and tear in the heart comes from. The diabetes is associated with obesity. As I've mentioned, obesity does increase your risk of sleep apnea. But once you have sleep apnea, it's extremely difficult to lose weight. And that's partly because you wake up tired. So exercise is much harder to do. But also go calorie hunting because you're tired. Tired the whole day, go calorie hunting. Maybe if I have a biscuit, I will feel better because there's a bit of a sugar surge. So you do change your eating habits. It's much harder to stay on a diet if you have sleep apnea. The exercise is less. So it's never a good thing if you have a calorie intake, but you burn off less because you're doing less exercise during the day. And I'm not talking about just the hours in the gym. I'm talking about the 10,000 steps, the activity during the day that you are more active. But what people don't realize is that behind the scenes, your fat cells and your whole metabolic system is not operating the same as it used to. And so diet and exercise tend not to work because the whole system is not what you expect. If you treat the sleep apnea, then the diet and exercise tends to work and you tend to be able to lose weight. So importantly, if you do put on a couple of kilos, you're likely to induce sleep apnea from a snoring situation. But once you have the sleep apnea, you're likely to continue to put on weight, which is also going to make the sleep apnea worse. So it becomes a very vicious forward running cycle. And I have patients all the time. I don't know. I can't stop this weight gain. I'm trying everything possible, but I can't stop the weight gain. So weight and sleep apnea are very closely linked in this whole kind of scenario. Then the other thing that we mentioned was things like depression and dementia. We do know that if you have sleep apnea and you then get depression, that depression is likely to be worse and is likely to be treatment resistant because part of the cause of the depression is coming from the sleep apnea and it's not treated. So we do have the psychiatrist routinely now measuring screening for sleep apnea, like, is it possible that you have sleep apnea? Let's check if you have sleep apnea, because then we know that the antidepressants that we're using are likely to work. We do have that. So how do you know that you have sleep apnea? Or is there any way that you can tell that you might have sleep apnea? And the answer is yes, we have a bunch of questionnaires that we use that you can look at and say, what is my risk of sleep apnea? So the easiest one to remember is called the stop bang so S-T-O-P-B-A-N-G. It's available on the internet if you look it up. You can look it up if you don't remember it from this conversation. So if we work through it, stop. The S stands for snoring. Do you snore loudly? The T stands for tiredness. Are you tired during the day? The O stands for observed apneas. Has anybody ever said that you seem to stop breathing at night, that you catch your breath while you're sleeping? If you don't have a bed partner, have you ever woken up? coughing, choking, feeling like you can't breathe ever. We're not talking about every night. We're not talking about 50 times a night. We're talking about ever. Then that counts, yes. And the P stands for blood pressure. High blood pressure is the single biggest cardiovascular event that happens with sleep apnea. And it's they're very, very closely linked. And if you have high blood pressure, so the STOP, snoring, tiredness, observed apneas, and pressure for high blood pressure, that's the stop. And it's just a yes, no answer for all of those. The bang starts with B. How? What is your BMI? Are you overweight? If your BMI is over 30, 
then yes. The A stands for age, over 50 years old. Are you over 50? Yes. The, neck, the N stands for neck circumference. As we mentioned, 43 centimeters in men, 41 centimeters in women. Yes, if you're over that number. And the G stands for gender, and that's for male. You can see how males are compromised in all of this. So do more men snore than women? Yes, they do. But it's not just in men. So it's because particularly when women go through menopause, that's when their sleep apnea rate increases as well. But anytime you look at um, sleep apnea data, there are many more men that have sleep apnea than women. So there's the stop bang. Eight questions, yes or no questions. If you score five or more out of eight, then there's an 80% chance that you have significant apnea. Now, we don't know how bad it is from that questionnaire. And that's when you need to start going and having a diagnostic study. There, unfortunately, is no way of connecting the symptoms that you have to the severity of the apnea. And there are many, many symptoms that you can have from sleep apnea. So I'm constantly astonished by patients who are referred to me. So patients come from the ophthalmologist and they say, I have floppy eyelid syndrome, so I must be screened for sleep apnea. And I go, how is that even connected? But it is. It is connected. But the common symptoms is obviously the daytime sleepiness, but headaches at night. Do you wake up with headaches? Obviously, the restless sleep, the conversation from your bed partner that is saying what's happening. But you can, you wake up tired, you wake up with a headache, you wake up with a dry mouth, you're going to the toilet often at night. Those are all symptoms of sleep apnea. Feeling depressed, you know, having insomnia can even be a symptom of sleep apnea. So there are many, many symptoms. But these eight ones that are reflected in the stop bang are those that are most predicting, most likely to predict the fact that you have sleep apnea. So if you're concerned that you are snoring or that you have sleep apnea, if you're concerned that your snoring has moved into sleep apnea, can I urge you to do the stop bang? If you find that you have quite a high number on that, please go and speak to your doctor about the fact that you might have obstructive sleep apnea. It's easy to diagnose on a home test that's done at night, and it's also treatable, and that can significantly change the medical progress that you might have and reduce the number of medical disorders that you present with. So that's this section. The next section is going to talk about how do we diagnose sleep apnea and what do we do about it once we have diagnosed it. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.